the book of Joshua, chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up to them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men sent out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us, unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, unless you you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell that what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. May God bless the reading of his word. So I read a story about the CIA trying to recruit some assassins. They went through the role of uh, leading successful soldiers and identified three people who might be potential assassins for future operations. Uh, Two men and one woman. As it happened, all three of them were married. 
So they called them in and gave them psychological testing, gave them some training, and then put them through the last, one last test that they had to pass in order to be recruited to be an assassin. They wanted to make sure that they would obey orders, whatever the cost. So they called the first man in and said to him, uh, your wife is in the next room. As a final test, take this gun and go kill her. We want to know that you're going to obey all the orders we give you. And he said, there's no way. So they, okay, they dismissed him. Take your wife, leave. Next man comes in, and they tell him the same thing. They say, your wife's in the next room. Take this gun, go, shoot her, and then we'll know that you have the stomach for this kind of work. So, reluctantly, slowly, he picks up the gun. He goes in the next room. After a couple of minutes, he, came, he left the room, came back in, and said, I can't do it. I love my wife. I'm not going to do it. She matters more to me than you. And so they dismissed her. So then the woman comes in, and they give her the same charge. They say, your husband's sitting in this next room. Take this gun. Go kill him. After a moment's hesitation, she picks up the gun. She goes into the room. Three shots ring out. And then there's a, a, some thrashing and some screaming and some yelling and some banging around. And, and then finally she comes back into the first room, slams the gun down on the table and says, it was filled with blanks. So I had to beat him to death with a chair. Now, if you think that song, I mean, if you think that story is inappropriate in a sermon, I invite you to raise your hand. It's okay. Do you think that, should I use that kind of a story in a sermon? All right. Now, here. Now, of course, a little footnote. Of course, we're not endorsing spousal abuse. All right. I don't think anyone here has been killed by their spouse but uh, realistically, in a crowd this size, there may be some homes where there's been some spousal abuse. And so I, little footnote, I, I, obviously we are not endorsing that. And if that is an issue in your home, then please seek intervention. Pastors, elders, uh, a therapist, uh, police if necessary, whatever. All right. If you think that story is inappropriate for a sermon... I wonder how you feel about that Bible reading, or that story, in your Bible. And that's the correlation. We're used to this Bible story, but have you thought about it? This is the Word of God. And it makes a prostitute into a hero. Now, we had an infant dedication. Think about, for you... If you had kids that you wanted to raise, would you read them this Bible story? Now, our MAPS fellowship has been using, has been working our way through this Jesus storybook, a new kid's Bible, been out a year or so, and maybe you're familiar with it, Jesus storybook. You know, there, there's some positive, very positive things about it. The pictures are great. A lot of the storylines are great, and they try to relate every story to Jesus. There's some, there's some liabilities to it, and there's some weaknesses in it, and we've been looking 
through uh, MAPS Fellowship, parents of young children. We've been looking through every other week, looking, reading a story and saying, okay, what's good about this that we can use and where are some, you know, kind of things that we really need to improve here? Jesus' storybook. So out of interest, you know, figuring, to figure out what they do with this story about a prostitute. I mean, if you're going to read your kids a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old story about a, a prostitute, they might ask, Mommy, Daddy, what's a prostitute? And so I, I looked, and, well, they don't cl- include that story in their Bible. <laughs> you know. Now, when my mother was growing up in a particular religious community, she was encouraged not to read the Bible. Because there are certain stories in there that are not appropriate for sweet, innocent teenage girls who want to grow up to love God. So you don't read them. And if you think back, I mean, Jewish culture was reasonably strict. Faithful Jewish culture still is quite strict. What would you do if you were a Jewish parent? What is God thinking putting this story in his, in his Bible. Now, Joshua 1 makes a lot of sense, right? Joshua 1 is conventional. Joshua 1 is a story about Joshua. He's a conventional hero, right? First of all, he's male. That's, you want your heroes to be male. If that offends you, don't worry, we're getting there. It, you know, I'm, hesitant, I'm, 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 I'm inclined to say, if you're from Wellesley, don't worry, we'll get there. But... <laughs> I wouldn't say that kind of thing. All right. <laughs> Sorry. He's male. Secondly, he's an Israelite. Right? One of the people of God. Thirdly, he worships Yahweh. Not only is he ethnically Israelite, religiously, he worships the true God. And fourthly, he's a warrior. He's a soldier. So that makes a good hero. And Joshua is the story of how God's people are going to go into this land he's given them, how they're going to fight their way in, and you need a hero to start this story. Because no army wants to march without a general at the top that they can trust and have confidence in. And so Joshua begins with this story about this great hero, Joshua, who's male, who's Israelite, who's Jewish, who's a fighter with a reputation for power. That makes sense. Joshua 1. And you don't need anything else, right? You could go directly from Joshua 1, this warrior who who loves God and and confidence in God. Brave. And then you go right into Joshua 3 where they march into the new land. You don't need Joshua 2. So why Joshua 2? And if you're going to tell another story as an intro, when one intro is enough, if you're going to put a second story as an intro, what sense does it make to make this story about a woman in a male chauvinistic culture, a Canaanite who were considered not just foreigners, but they're wicked foreigners. They worship Baal, the other gods. And above all that, she's not even a respectable Canaanite Baal worshiper. She's a prostitute. So you start off with this traditional story about a great noble hero, and before you have him invade the land, then you add this story about somebody who's more or less despicable at all levels. Why do we have two introductions to the book of Joshua? 
And what can we learn about this? You've got the conventional, traditional hero, and you've got this subversive story. Subversive to anything that God's word tends to teach. Subversive to the the male dominance of its day. Subversive to the priority of Israelites over all the other nations. Subversive to the, uh, the worship of Yahweh over Baal. Subversive, subversive to morality over immorality. Whatever could this story be doing here? Now, I'm going to skip over the meta-narrative part. If you're following along in the notes in your bulletin, I'm going to skip over that. It just complicates things and for the sake of time and to get home the main point. You can look in the, you know, not now, but later on, you can look in the devotional that talks about the meta-narrative parts. But what we're going to do is ask this morning, why this story? Why this story in this book? Why this story here in this book? How does it fit in? Notice this. Making the situation a little bit more complicated. Do you realize, as you listen to that story, that Rahab is the only competent person in Joshua 2? The only competent one. Notice, chapter 2, verse 1. This is page, uh, I think, 151 in your pew Bible. 153, 131, 152. <laughs> I'm reading the hand signals for the presider. Okay. Okay, it's there somewhere. You can find it. You got a table of contents. Okay. So notice how it begins. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, look at this word, secretly. And look at this other word. He sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there. And what happens in verse 2? The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. Whether the incompetence was Joshua's or whether it's spies, when you send a couple of male spies in to spy out the land, you hope that the first thing that happens is not that somebody reports to the king, hey, two spies have just arrived. <laughs> so the spies, or Joshua and the spies, somebody is incompetent on the Israelite side. And now look at the incompetence of the king of Jericho and his men. Verse 3, so the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and they, she hit him. And then she says, yes, the men came to me, but I I did not know where they had come from. You know, I'm not complicitous. She says, at dusk when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. Maybe you'll catch them. But of course, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that were laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And get this. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Locking the spies in the city rather than finding, you know, looking for them where they were, they looked for them where they weren't. This woman has successfully outwitted the king of her city and the surrounding area and all the soldiers just by telling a simple lie. There's nobody competent in, in Joshua 2 except Rahab. Except the one person in Joshua 2 that nobody, Israelite or Canaanite, wants their child to grow up to be. 
She's a woman. She's a Canaanite. She's a worshiper of Baal. And she's a prostitute. Why these two stories, traditional hero and subversive anti-hero, back to back before the chapter begins? This tells us something, clearly tells us something about how God works. Joshua, the stereotypical hero, the, the kind of guy you'd see in one of these action movies that was so popular 10 or 20 years ago. Male, Israelite, religious, warrior, virtuous. And maybe if he succeeds, he can say, I did it. Or if he's really devout, maybe if he succeeds, he can say, Ah, God did it through me because I'm special. And the author of Joshua says, it seems to anticipate that happening and says, Yeah, sure, you're special. You're just as special as this woman. You're just as special as this Canaanite. You're just as special as this Baal worshiper. You're just as special as this prostitute. You couldn't have done it without her. Your spies would have been killed. And you'd have been at a loss. And it tells us something about God. That he is the one who makes plans successful. That he is the one who achieves this victory. It's not Joshua. It's not the clever spies. It's not the Israelite army. It's God who brings us to pass. And it tells us something else about God. It tells us about the kind of people that God uses. God uses the elite. He uses Joshua. He uses the one whose gender made him elite, the one whose ethnicity made him elite, elite the one whose religion made him elite, the one whose training and profession made him elite. God uses the elite. But God also uses the underclass. God uses the people whose gender makes them underclass. Whose ethnicity makes them underclass. Whose religion makes them underclass. Whose occupation or vocation or morality makes them underclass. God uses the elite and, and God uses the underclass because it's really God who's doing it all and making it powerful. And so if we're elite, we don't take credit. And if we're elite, we don't even give credit to God for using the elite. We say, this is God, not us. And if we're somehow feeling inferior, or if we're actually, at some, in some respect, part of the underclass, we don't say, God can't use me. Because if God could use Rahab, there's not a person in this sanctuary that God can't use. Whatever the gender, whatever the ethnicity, uh, whatever the religious background, whatever the moral background, this tells us something about God. Now the New Testament reinforces Joshua. Because think about, there's three places where Rahab appears in the New Testament. Now you, a lot of you will know the first place she appears. She appears in Matthew chapter 1. In a genealogy, a long, boring list of names. And in there is the name Rahab. And what Matthew chapter 1 tells us is that Rahab, first of all, was an ancestor of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. And then Matthew chapter 1 tells us that this Canaanite Baal-worshipping prostitute was the ancestor of Jesus Christ. 
King David would not have been born without Rahab. Jesus would not have died for our sins without Rahab. This is an extraordinary God. And then Hebrews 11 tells us something else about Rahab. Hebrews 11 is making a point. Making a point about people who are faithful to God. Who have strong faith. Who trust Him in the midst of crisis. And to make this point. Because in Hebrews, they're under persecution. Their lands have been uh, occupied. Their lands have been confiscated. Some of them have been put in jail. Some of them may be killed. They don't know what the outcome will be. And Hebrews 11 is trying to give them confidence. Trying to give them faith in God, trust in God, so that they will be faithful. And so Hebrews 11 quotes all the heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. Quotes Abel was a person of faith. And Enoch. And Noah. And Abraham. And Isaac. And Jacob. And Joseph. And Moses. And in that line of people of faith and faithfulness comes the name Rahab, who trusted God and was faithful to him. And in fact, not only does she take her place in that line with a whole bunch of other heroes, because she took her place in that line, the author said there's a whole lot of other heroes I don't have time to mention. See, he had time to mention Rahab, the Canaanite. Baal worshipping prostitute. But he doesn't have time to mention Gideon or Samson or David or Samuel or the prophets. But he finds time for Rahab. Because God uses the powerful and he uses the dubious. And then in the book of James, James trying to make a point that we can't claim to believe without actually, if it doesn't make a change in our life, we can't claim to believe in God if there's no change in our lives. And he wants to make that point. He chooses two examples. He chooses the most august example in the Old Testament. He says, look at Abraham. What, was, what about Abraham? Abraham didn't just believe. He lived for God. And then he chooses the lowest example in the Old Testament. A Canaanite, a Baal worshiper, a prostitute. He says, look at Rahab. She didn't just believe. She lived for God. And from the top to the bottom, he says, this is what faith is like. These people don't just say they believe. They live for God. So it's not just Joshua who fastens on Rahab as a hero, unlikely though she may be. It's Matthew and the genealogy of Jesus. It's Hebrews as an example for the suffering church. It's James when he calls his believers to actual obedience, from the greatest to the least, from Abraham to Rahab. So we see from the New Testament that Rahab is not just a hero like Joshua. She's a hero on a par with David. She had a role in, in David's birth and in Jesus' birth. She's on a, a hero on a par with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with Samson, with Samuel, with the prophets. Even though she was a woman and a Canaanite and a Baal worshiper, she was a hero, along with the greatest heroes we know in the Old Testament. So what does all this say to us 2,000 years later? First of all, it, it tells us something about the ethics of gender, how God views gender. 
Now, this should be really obvious to us, but sometimes we get queries. I would say there doesn't, there's not a, and not probably not a semester that goes by that I don't get a query that starts, originates with a, a lecturer at university or friends from university who say, how can you believe in God if you're a woman because the Bible is misogynist? And there are a couple of verses in the New Testament that are challenging for egalitarians. 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. We won't go there. We don't have time to explore the whole thing right now. But here is at least one response. For every 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Corinthians 14, there's a Joshua 2. There's a Tamar. There's a Deborah. There's a Rahab. The Bible was written in a strongly male chauvinistic culture, but the Bible is not chauvinistic. For every Joshua in one chapter, there's a Rahab in the adjoining chapter. What is this author saying to his male chauvinistic readers? Gender's got nothing to do with it. It's faith and it's faithfulness. What about, this passage also says something to us that we really need to consider about the ethics of uh, sexual immorality, particularly the ethics of prostitution. I think we're also more sophisticated now than we were 20 or 30 years ago when prostitutes were viewed as, you know, immoral people. I mean, I think we all realize now, we've read enough reports to realize that often People get into prostitution after a childhood of sexual abuse. Or they get into prostitution because of addiction to drugs or alcohol. And it's not just the people who are the victims in the prostitution, the prostitutes themselves, but it's a, a, a double standard society that somehow allows people to pay for the prostitution, without which the economy wouldn't exist. You know, I, I knew a missionary, now deceased. He was a professor at Westminster Seminary when I was attending there. He'd been a missionary in Korea. When he went, first went to Korea after the Korean War, maybe early 60s, one of the things, you know, he was looking around, what, where am I going to specialize my ministry? Where am I going to focus? And one of the things that grabbed his attention, he said later on, because he came with a middle-class white morality, one of the things that grabbed his attention were prostitutes. And he decided he was going to reach out to these prostitutes and save them from their life of sin. Notice, their life of sin. And then as he got to know some prostitutes, and he went into one, uh, um, anyway, um, the words escape me. He went into one prostitution location. And um, he saw a girl there that was only the age of his daughter, maybe 11, 12. And he was horrified. And he said to her, what are you doing? And she explained her story. She had grown up in the countryside. Her parents were peasants. They couldn't afford more children. And, and, and you know, you get rid of the girls, not the boys. So her parents sold her on the promise that she'd go to the city and get a job in a factory and be able to send money home. They sold her and she got taken to the city and got abused. And then, you know, she couldn't go home because it was shameful. She had no choice. And then he realized that it's really not the prostitute who's the sinner here. She's the one who's sinned against 
And it changed the direction of his ministry. So he was reaching out now to prostitutes because they were sinned against rather than sinners. And it shaped the nature of his ministry. And the same is true of prostitution in this country. Often it's people that first had their self-image and their standards or their, their reservations broken down through sexual abuse or who got desperate through addiction and poverty and then entered. So we don't, you know, what this passage says to us, it, it shapes our view of prostitution, that this is not an indication of somebody's depravity. Because God can reach into the life not only of a prostitute, but of a Baal-worshipping prostitute, of a Canaanite Baal-worshipping prostitute. And God can reach into her life and turn her into the ancestor of King David. Turn her into the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Turn her into a role model for people of faith who risk their lives whose lives are in jeopardy. For all of history, she becomes a role model. I think this passage tells us something else about the ethics of sexual morality. And this is going to be a lot more controversial, but... And we don't have a lot of time to develop it, so if this inflames you, feel free to email Elder Terry this week and... Um, you know, the, the Bible does not distinguish between the sexual morality of prostitution and the sexual morality of sex outside of marriage. Uh, the Bible does not say, you know, prostitutes are depraved, but it's okay to have sex for love if, as long as you don't do it for money. You know, you, you can't do it for money, but you can do it for free. Now again, we've got to deal with this issue of sinned against rather than sinning. There is a horrifying statistic recently that came out of, based on research, that based by city by city, Boston's one of the worst cities in America, but based by city by city, how many dates does a, at what number of date does a man expect to have sex? And it was something like 25% of Boston males expect to have sex on the first date. So there's a lot of men in Boston sinning against a lot of women. There's a recent book called Premarital Sex in America by Mark Regnerus. He's a sociologist and he researched the incidence of premarital sex, the rationale behind it, and so forth. And this is what he discovered, is that there is an economy of premarital sex. And by economy, he doesn't mean people paying. What he means is the exchange of goods and services. But basically, he calls it, describes this as an economy of sex. His argument is this. To all outward appearances, sex without commitment is advantageous to men and disadvantageous to women. On average, sex without commitment, with a large number of partners, men get more out of this deal than women do. And so he asks, why do women go for the arrangement? Sex without commitment. And based on his research, he concluded it, it works on an economy. 
where there are more men who want to get married than women, then women don't hand out sexual favors freely. But where there's more women than men who are eligible for marriage, then women have to play by the rules of the economy that the men set up. Now note this. Where do you find today more women than men? University campus and church. So his point is not... I think we can't go to this text and say, look, God says to women who have sex before marriage, this is immoral. God says to everyone, first of all, who has sex before marriage or outside of marriage, after marriage with somebody else, adultery, premarital sex, God says to everybody, this is immoral. And you can hardly say, I'm better than a prostitute because I do it out of love or for free rather than getting money for it. You're richer than a prostitute, maybe. But it doesn't mean you're better. You know, this is just the, the, this, the biblical ethics of, of sex outside of marriage. It, it's not a monetary-based economy. But he's not addressing the women. What is he saying to the men who really, even if they don't use force, are the sexual abusers in this relationship? You're desperate for a date. I'll date you as long as you let me have sex. What kind of rationale for that is that for, at university? Oh, but how about church? What rationale is that for church? I've counseled couples that have had sex before marriage while they've been dating. You know, we're not flamboyantly just, we're not a lot of hookups or whatever. But, you know, there's huge temptations. And typically, not always, but not always, but typically, the men, excuse me, you all, you've heard this language before. The men are just horny, and the women are just afraid that the guy's going to lose interest. It's advantageous to the man more than it is to the woman. And so we take advantage of that kind of an environment. So God has a lot to say about sex, even if you don't pay for it, and even if you're not paid for it. But the point of Rahab's story is not... People who have sex outside of marriage are terrible. That's what the Bible says as a whole, that this is a terrible problem. People aren't terrible, but the problem is terrible. But what, what Rahab tells us is this. If this is your past, you can still be a hero in the work of God. Look at Rahab. If God could redeem a Canaanite Baal worshiper, who was a prostitute, surely he can redeem us from our sexual pasts. All we need do is what Rahab did and come to God and serve him and worship him. I'm over time, but there's one more point I want to make. One more point this text makes. You know, this text was about taking the land. And I showed you last week or the week before that actually for us this text is about missions. Missions. Who God can use in missions. In the New Testament, if you don't follow that from the previous week, come see me afterwards. But well, it's who, can, who can lead God's people into the land? Now for us, the question is, who can lead God's people into missions? Because we're in a different stage of what God's work is in the world. In their day, his work was getting the land. In our day, his work is missions. Who can lead God, God's people, in the work of missions? 
And what this story tells us is it doesn't take just the elite. God can use the elite. He can use Joshua. He can use the guy that's multilingual. He can use the guy that's brilliant and can use his technical skills overseas. He can use the guy that's courageous and can talk about Christ readily. He can use all those people. But God can use the underpowered, the underclass. I tell you a story. Many of you know the name Hudson Taylor. In fact, his, I don't know, great-great-grandson, whatever. J- Jamie Taylor used to be pastor here and will be coming back in a month or two. You know, many of you know the famous name Hudson Taylor. In his day, Hudson Taylor was not elite. In his day, Hudson Taylor could not qualify to be a missionary to China with most, most mission agencies. Hudson Taylor was blue-collar and he did not have a seminary degree. He would not qualify to be a missionary because missionary societies wanted their missionaries to be pastors with seminary degrees. He didn't have it. And he became probably the most famous Western missionary in China. But I'll tell you another story. Hudson Taylor started CIM, China Inland Mission, which at one point had the most missionaries in all of China, over a thousand missionaries in all of China. A woman applied to CIM, Gladys Allward, an uneducated woman, couldn't read really well. She was a domestic maid when all the poor people either became prostitutes or domestic maids. That's, you know, she had no future, she had no past, she had no name. She applied to join CIM. And CIM, founded by Hudson Taylor, the non-elite, said to her, no, 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 no. You don't have enough qualifications. You really can't go. You, we don't know that you're smart enough to learn Chinese. You know, we don't know that you're elite enough to, to connect with the Chinese middle class people. And they said, no, you can't go. Somehow she got there anyway. More or less on her own, not through CIM. And Gladys Allward became one of the most famous female missionaries ever in the history of China. And there was a famous movie made by the, the most famous actress of that time in the 1950s or 60s made about Gladys Allward because of her story and the dramatic things that God had done to her. What is the message of Joshua 2 for missions? And it's this. No one in God's economy is disqualified from being an extraordinary instrument in his hands. If God could use a prostitute, Canaanite, Baal worshiper, as an instrument in taking the land, he can use any of us as his instrument in reaching the nations. This is the word of Joshua 2. God uses traditional heroes, Joshua, Joshua 1. And God uses people like Rahab, Joshua 2. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would use us. Father, we plead for you to, first of all, to work in our lives. That whatever our past, whatever our present, whatever our spiritual abilities and our technical skills, we ask you to use us to show us that it all depends on you 
and then to give us the courage to step out for you. We ask you to use us in a small measure of the way that you used Rahab and Joshua. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.